You are listening to the protagonist of the erotic. Produced by Extra Extra. Each episode is dedicated as an act of love to the libidinal ouvreur of a living person. Desired object or location that can be visited in the present day. We discover what it means to define and shape sensuality, framed within the dynamic context of modern urban life. Botanical philosopher Norbert Peters finds the lives of plants endlessly invigorating. At his local urban hothouse, surrounded by lush vegetation and chirping insects, a gigantic phallic inflorescence is unfurling for the first time in over 20 years. Colloquially known as the penis flower, the foul scent of the amorphophallus is nearly intolerable. Yet its emergence has made international headlines and attracted a sea of visitors who queue to take a photo with the bulbous bloom. From the dusty journals of historical naturalists to the exploits of beloved British documentarian David Attenborough and the flower celebrity status in the present day, Norbert traces the cultural lineage of the Amorphophallus, a story ripe with controversy, allure, and intoxication. The old botanical garden of Leiden University, called Hortus Botanicus, is a small green oasis located in the city center. As October draws to an end, fall is in full swing and the garden is showing its autumnal tints. Usually it's quiet this time of year, and I can saunter in solitude like a quiet recluse, occasionally passing some students and other passers-by. But not this morning. This morning the people came out in droves. The news that something strange and wondrous was happening had traveled fast, drawing national and even international media attention. It was an hour after opening, but a long line which stretched all the way to the cash register at the entrance had already formed in front of the tropical greenhouse. The line moved along slowly, like a religious procession. But these visitors, myself included, were on a peculiar pilgrimage. The goal was not some kind of relic, like a small bone, a tuft of hair, or a drop of blood of some saint sitting on top of an altar, but a botanical marvel from the jungles of West Java. And the strange thing was that I could smell it well before I saw it. 
But finally, there it was, perched on top of a two and a half meter high stalk, the flower of a giant arum species with the cumbersome name Amorphophallus degus silvae. Actually, I shouldn't say flower. The correct botanical term is inflorescence. Although throughout this story, I will, with some poetic license, refer to it as a flower. To understand why the proper name is inflorescence, we need to examine the anatomy of this enormous bloom. It consists of two main organs, a large so-called spadix in its center that resembles a large baguette in size, shape, and color. Before it blooms, this baguette is wrapped in a large bract that is called a spate. When it flowers, this wrapper opens up at the top, like a large crimson-colored fringe that resembles a cartwheel ruff that an aristocrat from the 16th century would wear as a collar. From the side, the spade is bowl-shaped at the bottom, kind of like a garden vase, with an extravagant lip that flares back out at the top. In this vase, hidden from sight, are the actual male and female flowers. They form rings around the spadix. It is a sight to behold. But why did this particular flower draw such a large crowd, and not any of the other magnificent flowers in the greenhouse? First of all, when it comes to floral aesthetics, sometimes size matters. Although there are even larger giant arum flowers, it's still considerably large, and dare I say, more delicate than its larger aeroid cousin, the Amorphophallus titanum. Another appeal seems to be its appalling smell. During flowering, it emits a foul odor, which is why in Indonesia the plant is named Kembang Bangke, which means corpse flower. It also attracts so much attention because it flowers for just one day. And this is only the third time that specimens from Java had flowered in this botanical garden. The last time was 1997, 24 years ago, making its occurrence a rarity and comparable to a comet sighting. But perhaps the most seductive element of this arum flower is its somewhat suggestive form. In the Netherlands, it's commonly known as the penis plant. The Dutch do enjoy some light-hearted drollery, and when pronounced, the name is usually followed by a soft snickering. The official genus name of the plant, Amorphophallus, sounds a bit statelier, but it carries the same lewd connotation. This name even caused a bit of a controversy back in the day. For the BBC series The Private Life of Plants, renowned documentary maker Sir David Attenborough wanted to show a time-lapse of the flowering of the largest giant arum, Amorphophallus titanum. But he deemed the genus name unsuitable for family viewing and chose the more neutral-sounding Titan arum. One of the most extraordinary of these insect enticers lives here in the tropical rainforest of Sumatra. It only flowers once in a thousand days. And when the flower develops, it only lasts for three days. So very few people have seen it. Here it is. Technically, it's a whole group of flowers clustered around this, but you can be justified for regarding it as one flower. And if you do that, well then, this is the biggest flower in the world.
But all prudishness aside, there is something strange about the name Amorphophallus. It's a combination of two Greek words. Amorphos meaning formless or shapeless, and phallus meaning penis. But what is a formless penis? How can it be phallic-shaped if it's formless? Let's take a closer look at the origin of the name. Coincidentally, the name Amorphophallus was coined here in Leiden by the German-born botanist Karl Ludwig Blume, who held a professorship in botany at Leiden University and was director of the Royal Herbarium, formerly adjacent to the garden. During his stay, Blume published a multi-volume monograph on the Indonesian flora, titled Rumphia, which was published between 1836 and 1849. In it, he coined the genus name Amorphophallus, and the name stuck. He also explained that the name consists of a combination of two Greek words. But strangely enough, he chose the Latin translation deformis for the Greek word amorphous. This doesn't mean formless or shapeless, but rather deformed, misshapen, or even ugly. So it seems more appropriate to translate amorphophallus as deformed or ugly penis plant. Blume also quotes his source of inspiration for the name, the German-born naturalist Georg Ewart Rumphius, to which the title of Blume's book, Rumphia, was a dedication. Rumphius was a merchant for the Dutch East India Company, from the 17th century, who lived in Ambon in the Moluccas. During his spare time, he devoted himself to his true passion, natural history. And he wrote several multi-volume works on the flora and fauna of this region. His most monumental work was the Ambonese Herbal, a 12-volume book on the flora of the Malay archipelago, the first of its kind, in this herbal, we find one of the oldest descriptions of the flowering of an Amorphophallus species. Book 8 contains a chapter entitled The Compernuia Bearing Taka. Nowadays, it's known that the flower Rymphius describes belongs to a species called Amorphophallus peunifolius, better known as the elephant yam. This was a well-known food plant that was widely cultivated in Southeast Asia at the time, and Rymphius was familiar with the plant. But oddly enough, he describes it in a different chapter. He writes that the plant consists of a single stem with a large, umbrella-shaped, multi-lobed, single leaf which sprouts from an underground tuber or corm. Every year the gigantic leaf wilts away and gives rise to another leaf. In the meantime, below ground, the corm is growing. But what Rymphius failed to realize was that these corms were harvested before they would bloom. But sometimes in abandoned gardens or out in the wild, these corms would bloom. Apparently, this was such a rare sight for Rumphius that when he describes a blooming specimen, he classified it as a separate species. And he decided on a name that sounds perplexing to our ears, the Compernuia bearing taka. The word Compernuia is derived from an old French word for mushroom. Rumphius has been has been kind of hidden in the shadows because uh, he did not produce an, an, an work, an, an abstract concept that uh, that survived the ages, like say like Linnaeus did or something. I mean, he he was pre-Linnean. He, in, in essence, uh, uh, wrote, and he got very close to doing it completely, a natural history of Eastern Indonesia. 
Wunvich became important again because people realized that he had an invaluable treasure trove of information on the botanical properties of plants in that part of the world. And for each plant, which he describes in detail, he gives what he had heard or was handed to him, the the information by the local populace of what you could do with it for medical purposes. And that knowledge was based on centuries of, of practice. His medical information, he wanted to be used by people at that time, uh, not just the Europeans, but by everybody. He became so well-versed in, in the medical properties of his plants and how to prepare them that the local herbalists, which by the way were all women, used to come to him and ask him questions and asked him to, uh, to grow plants in his, in his own, you know, kind of small Ortus Botanicus that he had. He became, but how can you put this? He became more of an uh, of an expert than 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 the local people who've been doing this, you know, since time memorial, uh, which I think is an extraordinary achievement. He also saw things and he was told things that you normally would never ever expect a white man to hear. For example, uh, well, he he has all kinds of of information about abortion. Uh, he has all which kinds was a practice. Oh yeah, it was very much practiced. And uh, he has all kinds of information about sexual aspects of life. And he, where he got it from, I figure via his wife, but still he must have been uh, totally trusted by, by the local people and particularly by the women uh, because they sure as hell would not have divulged this to, uh, to let's say, an, an ordinary Dutchman from, from the Dutch East India Company. In his description of the flowering taka, Rumphius recounts how his helpers had encountered a specimen in the mountains of Ambon and had dug out a large corm, which was the size and shape of an e-dammer cheese, and brought it to their master's garden. Soon after they had planted it, the leaf withered away and the corm was forgotten about. But some months later, Rumphius was startled to discover that a gigantic bloom was shooting up in the very same spot the corm was buried. It was a ghastly spectacle to behold, Remphius writes, as if some sort of horrible animal was hatching. In the end, he identified it as a mushroom. And after the mushroom perished, it grew berries as big as olives that changed from green to bright red and were consumed and dispersed by birds. Remphius was convinced that the taka underwent some strange metamorphosis below ground. Somehow, the plant had transformed into a mushroom although this change sounds more bizarre to our ears than it did to his. Nowadays, plants and fungi belong to two separate kingdoms. But in Rumphius' day, this was not the case. In fact, he includes several species of fungi in his Ambonese herbal. So a change from plant to fungus was not considered such a big leap. Moreover, the color and the shape of the flower do show some resemblance to the fruiting bodies of fungi, albeit quite a bit larger. Like a mushroom, it blooms on a single stem. When it opens, it consists of an enormous white spadix crowned with a strange bulbous purple knob, encircled by an equally large crimson or purple-colored spade that changes to white near its center. In his description, Rumphius likens the spadix to a phallus, and he even adds that the spade, before it opens, serves as a foreskin of this phallus. 
because of this resemblance to the male member, Rumphius picks the Latin name Tacca fallifera, which means penis-bearing tacca. Let's go look at a penis plant. <laughs> this one finally opened in the Botanic Gardens in Leiden, where I volunteer. And it's a beautiful, beautiful flower. It's the Amorphophallus decus sylvae. And it's very high up on a stem. As you can see, it's very tall with a very narrow stem and then the flower at the top. It didn't smell very bad yet, but it got more intense in the afternoon. And the pattern With the name Amorphophallus, Bluma had combined Don't two insights from Rumphius. <laughs> it's a appalling sight and its phallic shape. So perhaps ugly penis plant seems the most adequate translation of Amorphophallus. But there was another reason why the flower caused such an offense to Rumphius. The flower produced a horrendous stench, which he likens to rotting fish. The function of this great spike in the middle is to produce a smell. <coughs> and if you smell it, it smells very strongly of uh, bad fish. This apparently attracts insects, which come along here and go down into this great funnel to these small flowers that grow at the base. Until this film was taken, no one was sure what insects pollinated the Typhion. As we watched, we saw that without doubt, the job was done by tiny sweat bees. Like other arums, the male flowers form a band at the top. Below them, the female flowers with long yellow-tipped stigmas. The bees seem to find some reward on stigmas, for they crawled all over them, distributing the pollen they brought with them. But why should the Titan Arum produce the biggest bloom in the world to attract such tiny pollinators? To be effective, these bees must bring pollen from another bloom. But since the plant is rare and only flowers once in three years, the nearest may be miles away. It's not easy to spread perfume over such distances in the still, humid air of the rainforest. Perhaps the best way to do so is to disperse it from the top of a towering spire, like smoke from a factory chimney. One more remarkable observation Rumphius made that deserves our special attention. He writes about the bloom, and I quote, When the head is opened, a sharp vapor comes out that will cause some burning to one's face. End of quote. Although his account seems somewhat exaggerated, nonetheless it will prove insightful. At the present day, it is a well-known fact that spadix and various aroid inflorescences heat up during flowering a phenomenon that is known as thermogenesis. However, botany books always mention the French naturalist Jean-Baptiste Lamarck as the discoverer of this phenomenon. But Rumphius' quote predates Lamarck's by over a century. In springtime, Italian arum lilies bloom in carpets in the botanic garden, 
with their purple-spotted white spades like little lanterns that light the garden floor. The flowers go by many common names. Similar to his giant cousins in the jungles of Sumatra and Java, the names of Aramaculatum also show phallic references. In Britain it is, for instance, known as lords and ladies, whereby the spade and the spadix are likened to the male and female genitalia. In the 16th century herbal by the Flemish botanist Rembert Dodens, we find many more lewd names, such as priest's penis or man's force. The ancient writer Dioscorides even prescribes the bulbs or corms of various arum species as an aphrodisiac. The flower of the arum lily does remind one of a far smaller and less flamboyant version of the Amorphophallus, a micropenis plant. Dan kita lihat juga di sini ada beberapa seedling atau bunyi dari Amorphophallus variabilis. Kemungkinan ini adalah benih-benih yang sprot dari biji yang saya taburkan beberapa bulan yang lalu. Mungkin ada masih ingat videonya. Di akhir-akhir video tersebut saya menaburkan biji Amorphophallus variabilis. Lihat keadaannya sangat kering sekali di kebun ini. Dan saya juga kembali menemukan bunga Amorphophallus variabilis lainnya. But there is a more interesting similarity between the blooms of this smaller arum species and their giant cousins. This gives us insight into the more deceptive nature of these plants. Many arid flowers seem to function like pitfall traps. These are ingenious adaptations to capture and detain flies, gnats and beetles. Let us see how these innocent visitors are hoodwinked by the arum lily. As the spade opens, the spadix starts heating up. The thermogenesis helps to emit an unpleasant odor to our noses. But this odor is irresistible to small carry-on beetles, flies, and especially the so-called sewer gnat. In the hope to find a suitable place for their eggs, they start to swarm the flower in large numbers. The spade forms a kind of cauldron or pitfall around the spadix in the center of the flower. Lower down, the spadix hold three rings of small flowers. At the top are a number of sterile male flowers that function like prison bars of the pitfall. Below that are male flowers and at the lowest part of the spadix are the female flowers. As soon as the visitors alight on the slippery spade, they slide down, and if they're small enough, they tumble through the prison bars into the cavity. When they try to fly out, these bars block their escape. At the moment the visitors are taken captive, the female sexual parts or stigmas are fertile. They produce a slimy sap on tufts of hair, which acts like a kind of nectar and is guzzled up by the inmates. If, upon entering the pitfall, they carry pollen with them from previous arum visits, these get deposited on the stigma. After the female flowers are fertilized, night falls. Throughout the night, the male flowers open and the prisoners are showered with sticky pollen. In the morning, the prison bars have wilted away and the pollen-covered inmates are released. And these dupe detainees have not learned their lesson. If there are other arums flowering nearby, they will quickly let themselves be imprisoned again, 
whereby cross-pollination occurs. Having dissected the sagacious ways in which arid flowers imprison their pollinators, I would like to return to the flowering of our giant arum. The plant is, is native to Sumatra, Indonesia. It's, it's sort of a triple rare plant. You know, it's, it's rare in its native environment in Sumatra. It's rare in cultivation, so now often encountered in public gardens. And it's also rare to get it to bloom. So this is a, a really unique experience for us horticulturally and for the region, really. 1939 was the last time we had anything in New York like this bloom, and that was at the New York Botanic Garden. We've been growing this behind the scenes for 10 years, and each year getting only a leaf. So this year, inexplicably, we got a flower bud and that's where all the excitement comes from. The only way that this plant has to attract this pollinator is by stinking and uh, pretending to be something that is rotting. It smelled really bad this morning. And it only smells when the female flowers are receptive to pollen because that's what it's attracting the dung beetles and the flies to pollinate. It smells like that dog. Like a rotten dog rotting like rotting flesh. It really stinks very, very bad. Right, like I will know when I smell that, you know, like uh, that's the that's the arrow. I came here very early this morning. I came at four because I really wanted to smell it. And I have to tell you, it really smells very bad. As you look at the plant, what I liked about this one, at the flower is, it really, to me, looks like a sculpture. Where some of the other pictures of the titanium that I've seen, either the spath is laying down really low, or the spadix is a little more shapeless in that. Color-wise, texture-wise, it's pretty dramatic plant. So I think a lot of people are, are realizing it's a lot more beautiful than the press might have, uh, have otherwise suggested. It's just the colors, the chartreuse, the maroon, and it also has a presence to it when you look at it. It definitely, definitely speaks to you. To be able to grow it and to bring it to flower is itself a combination of skills, knowledge, and also passion. To Rumphius' ears, it would sound bizarre that people came out in droves to see this appalling creature. To him, there is nothing alluring about this bloom. However, since the 19th century, there seems to have been a re-evaluation of these giant arums and other conspicuous blooms. This change is nicely summed up in the name of the giant aroid now flowering in the botanical garden, Amorphophallus degus silvae. The genus name we now know means ugly penis, but the species name means jewel of the forest. The species name is emblematic for a new approach to wilderness and its inhabitants. In the 17th century, the wilderness would strike fear into the hearts of naturalists. By the 19th century, these areas exhumed an aura of adventure, mystery and exoticism, and were regarded as a treasure trove with many jewels not yet seen by the light of science. These giant aroids and similar discoveries became living emblems of scientific curiosity and colonial rule. In Europe, many botanical gardens sprouted up, with special greenhouses designed to display these colonial treasures. And giant arum species were placed in the same category as the Amazon water lily, or Victoria regia, the Caribbean pelican flower, or Aristologia gigas, and the corpse flower, Rafflesia arnoldii, which produces the largest single flower on earth. But I wouldn't go so far as to say that the aesthetic allure of Amorphophallus only comes down to scientific curiosity and our dominion over nature. The plant seems to have a say as well. When we come out to see it bloom, are we not intoxicated by its erotic aura, its exotic allure, its offensive aroma, and its rarity? 
and maybe even a sliver of vegetative fourierism and romantic daydreams of pristine rainforests. Which begs the question, are we so different from the little critters that are intoxicated by the Aaron Bloom and let themselves be imprisoned? Of course, we are not fooled into thinking that the flower is an actual rotting cadaver. But for a brief moment, we are attracted to its bloom like moths to a flame. Thank you for joining Extra Extra on this listening experience. It's been a pleasure to have welcomed you on a journey through this episode of The Protagonist of the Erotic. Please visit us at extraextramagazine.com where you can hear more about our auditory program and discover further editorial content exploring the intertwinement of sensuality and the city.